as we turn to the, the scriptures once again and look at the, the words written to us as strangers and exiles, build us up as we gain understanding, insight, and hope. Amen. All right, we're in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Last time we left off looking at our change in purpose, our change in status, and how that change came about as we are called from darkness to light. And if you want to follow along the, the folders, you can grab your favorite color. Someone grabbed Bethany's favorite color already. <laughs> you can... That's Phoebe's favorite color. Yeah. So you can uh, you can grab a folder and it should have everything in it up to date. I don't have next week's ready yet, so I'm falling a little bit behind. But um, I'm planning to have usually that you can look ahead each week, and I'll put out the next study when it's available. So look at the study outline just to bring us back up to speed where we are in the upper left. We saw at the first part of the letter the prophesied suffering and glory. You know, Peter addressed them as you're suffering various trials. But look at this. According to God's foreknowledge and by the prophets, they were searching at the suffering and glory of the Christ. So guess who you're following? And then throughout first, the first chapter, we saw Peter echoing faith, hope, love, uh, that believers are to follow Christ as they are built up in those three things. Last time we saw from dark stone to living stone, as we follow Christ, the cornerstone, and our, our change in status, and then even though the world will stumble, to us he's precious. Now we're getting to another application section, humbly follow in his footsteps. So the second half of chapter 2. We're going to pick it up at verse 11. I'm just going to read verse 11 and 12 to get us started. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the top of page nine there. The Christian is at war with the sinful flesh. Notice Peter says there, right? Wage war against your soul, those sinful desires. Our sinful desires include things such as drunkenness, self-indulgence, envy, strife, sexual immorality, and the love of money. Uh, you'll see both Peter and Paul will parallel uh, the, the sinful nature or sinful desires, strive after those things. Can you explain how our identity as foreigners as he calls us in verse 11, foreigners and exiles. How does that shape our mindset towards the desires of the sinful flesh? I don't think ours is any different than the, the Israelites, the chosen people. They, they have all those same, they did all those same things. Yeah. <laughs> Am I wrong? No, you're right. They, they fell into that all those types of things. The everything from sexual immorality to drunkenness to envy, they fell into that. Even though they were literally sojourning, and they they knew they were strangers in this world. Well, just the the name of sojourners and visitors gives you the idea that we shouldn't feel too comfortable, or we shouldn't get too comfortable. So if you do feel comfortable in this world, 
probably an indication that something will off. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not that the flesh or the things of this world are inherently sinful, but we're drawn to them to abuse and use them because of our sin in sinful ways, right? And we get drawn to them and we think that this is our, our goal. But Peter's reminding us, you're foreigners, you're exiles. Don't, don't get attracted to the sinful desires of this world. So it definitely does, <clears throat> that mindset is shaped as we recognize we don't belong to this world. Uh, as Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, we're in the world, we're not, we're not of this world. Well, we have a dual citizenship. Right, so that foreigner idea reminds us where's, where's our real true citizenship. As Paul says, we, we eagerly await our Savior from heaven. That's where our citizenship lies. Don't get too attracted to this place you're just sojourning through. Um, can you list some ways unbelievers will, as, as Peter says, accuse you of wrong, even though you strive to abstain from sinful desires? What are some ways you'll be accused of doing wrong by unbelievers? Not part of their group. Okay. Uh, that you won't join with them in their support of sin. And they'll actually say that you're wrong by not standing up for, uh, for example, um, pro-choice or pro-abortion, that, that you're in the wrong camp, even though you're just standing up for justice and for, for life, and you're abstaining from the, the sinful desire of saying, well, I'm just going to end this life, but I'm going to stand up for life. That you're accused of being the problem with this world. And right now, between now and the elections, it's going to get heavy with... Who do you favor? You know, that can really separate people on who your favorite politician is or who you stand up for to vote for. Okay, yeah. If, if your political issues are to support justice and uphold the word of God, people will get vehemently angry at you. Yeah. Well, just, just because we're called Christians doesn't mean that we're not sinners. We're still sinners. And... Okay, that's a good point, Pat. So we will be accused of doing wrong for what we truly have done wrong by the unbelieving world. So Peter says, live such good lives on the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, uh, sometimes it might be that we are sinners and saints and they, they see that part. God forgives us. We, ask, we know we're sinners. We ask for forgiveness and God forgives us. Right. It's when you don't ask for forgiveness there will lie the difference. You know, the, the Christian might, on occasion, fall into sin, and they might do, do it in such a way that it's public, and the unbelievers see it, and they, up, oh, see, see, you're no better than the rest of us. But the difference is repentance, faith, forgiveness, belonging to God. Yeah. Okay, and notice what the, the end goal is. He says, though they accuse you of doing wrong, if you live such a good life, abstaining from those sinful desires, they're going <clears> to <throat> see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Uh, Peter's once again brought us to Judgment Day. He's brought us to, there's going to be an end to this world. And keep your eyes on sight of that. Don't be so stuck in this place you're sojourning. Can you give some reasons why we'd have to disagree with this statement? The goal of godly living is to persuade and convert unbelievers. We 
we can do that. The Lord does that. We just share a message. Okay, so first of all, we don't have that power, do we? Uh, if, if you think, if I just live good enough of a life, then I'll convert people. That's not a power that's in us. Although God can certainly use that. Sure. So that's why some people take this statement. They'll say, you should live a good life so that people will be converted. And it's true. That is, we, we are the salt. We are the light. Uh, you had a statement there, Martha? I'm just going to say the same thing, Pat. Sure. So Jesus does tell us this, uh, that, but is is that the goal? I think of godly living more as like a fruit of faith. It's just a natural byproduct of having faith, wanting to glorify God. Sure. It has to be driven by the gospel, not by well. If I do a good enough life, then then people really believe in Jesus. So first of all, it's not the power to convert. It, it may open the door, but when you look at Peter says here. They'll glorify God on the day he visits us. Does that mean that by seeing the believer's good deeds that they're going to be converted? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It could be too late. <laughs> right. Um, and I have a little side note on this. Well, Peter 1 verse 12. The Bible says it. On that day, every knee will bow. And so, everybody will know that he is Jesus' is Lord. Right. So Peter is saying on Judgment Day, even the pagans, because they're called pagans in this verse, will have to acknowledge God was good all along on the day he comes. And that's not necessarily the goal of our godly living, but that, Peter says, is a result. That even though you've been accused of wrong, you'll be vindicated. You'll be shown to be right. God will be glorified on Judgment Day. Uh, that all this frustration you're feeling right now for being accused of doing wrong, even though you're just serving God, Someday that's going to disappear. That, that's Judgment Day. And there everything will be made right. And God will be glorified, not you. And maybe, just, just maybe, I think Peter also might be hoping, because he gets that God wants all people to come to repentance. Some of those who glorify God, they will have not only have seen, but will have heard and believed. But ultimately, that, that's not the goal. Any other thoughts in verse 11 and 12? Comments, questions? Okay, so we got that first application, re refrain from sinful desires. The next section kind of brings out a paradox. I titled it, Free But Slaves. So what do you think most people consider to be part of American freedom? Right to bear arms. <laughs> okay. That's so. the biggest topic lately. Second Amendment rights, the Bill of Rights, all freedom of speech, yeah. So American freedom, I can speak my mind and freely assemble and gather and free speech, weapons, I can bear arms, definitely big, big associations with American freedom. Okay. It's become, yeah, it's become an issue. American freedom includes the right to determine self-determination. Uh, maybe that's actually the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. And for some, that means they can kill a dependent child if it gets in their way of their plans. And by dependent child, I mean an unborn child too. So yeah, that's part of freedom, freedom of what to do with my body. And I guess you could get into the whole vaccine thing, right? Can the government mandate what I do with my body? Well, American freedom dictates, no, it can't, right? 
I'm free in my country. In China, they can do that, but not here, right? So we got American freedom. Let's discuss, though, how is the typical idea of American freedom and biblical freedom, how are they the same and yet very different? Well, America, you have freedoms to do. Well, a good example would be the freedom of speech. You know, we have the freedom of speech to speak out against the government when we feel they're doing wrong or something. But people take that to the nth degree when they say, did you hear what Joan did last week? <laughs> and start gossiping or slandering people or, or making false accusations. Yeah, I, I can say whatever I want and it doesn't matter what I say. Is that what Christian freedom has? No, there's no love. Yeah. With American freedom. So in American freedom, you can say F so-and-so and that's all part of free speech and you can do that and nobody can stop you. But in Christian freedom, we would say you're supposed to honor your governing authorities. Yes, you are, you are free to you know, disagree with the leaders and to speak out in the correct channels. But you're not free to mock. You're not free to disrespect governing authority. So there's a big difference. And also, American freedom is centered on what? Self. On self. I'm free to self-determination, self-proclamation, um, self-decision. Whereas Christian freedom is, it's not about me. I'm free to serve God and no longer slave to self, but serving others. So Christian freedom just turns the whole thing around. Well, it's also not just me, but a lot of times too, is the government's okay as long as they're giving me something like free money. <laughs> you know, I don't want, then I don't want to work for work or something. You know, yeah. Then it's okay to have the government. Let's read uh, what Peter says about this. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 16. Someone want to read that? Verses 13 to 16. Okay, go ahead. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority, or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil, and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. All right, thank you. So Peter talks about freedom there. He says, live as free people. But he warns, as God's free people, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Can you uh, give at least two examples of how a Christian might be tempted to use freedom as a cover-up for evil? Christian freedom or American freedom? Sometimes we confuse the two. So I'd, I'd say either. Well, actually, you could apply to both. Well, free speech. Okay. Free speech can be a cover-up for it. I think you mentioned that earlier, right? For slander, slander. Or falsely accuse somebody. Or... Yeah, slander or gossip. <clears throat> so, yeah, I'm, I'm free, but that can be turned into evil very quickly. Well, I think with Christian freedom, like, you know, we're free to not worship on Sunday morning. That's not demanded of us, but we can abuse it. 
Sure. By not gathering to worship ever. Yeah, you, you can't tell me, you know, how often I'm supposed to be in church or when to worship. Well, no. Uh, God does tell us to worship, worship regularly, but he, tell, he doesn't say how often. He doesn't say where. He doesn't specify what day it has to be on. God doesn't explicitly say in his word that I can't get a job where I'm occasionally gone on Sunday or I can't take a couple of vacation days and miss out on worship. But where do you draw the line to where you're despising God's word, right? You're free, but it can start to be something that it covers up despising his word. So that's the third commandment. You could take any commandment, right? Uh, where we think, well, God doesn't say what, what limit I have, therefore I'm, I'm free to do it. Yeah. It, it, kind of, it brings to my mind uh, the difference between liberty and freedom. Okay. There's not a lot of difference at all, really, but there, there's a little bit of difference between liberty and liberty is more like in government rather than other things. Does it make sense? <laughs> so liberty, you're not under someone else's sway or control, but freedom, how far can you go? Yeah. Uh, like in, in government, we have a libertarian party, which is limited government. So, right. So we would say, as Christians, we have zero liberty because we're submitting to God. We're submitting to the governing authorities. Uh, we can't just be self-determining. We are, we are bound by God's law and his will. But we are free in that we're not bound uh, to sin as slaves and we're not bound to try to free ourselves from death and sin and hell. Yeah. Okay. A godly living includes submission. Notice this, this section starts. As Peter's talking about uh, don't follow sinful desires. What's the first thing he starts expounding on? It's submission. So Peter doesn't want believers to submit to authority out of fear, but notice he says, submit for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Can you, can you identify the reasons we submit for the Lord's sake? Well, first of all, it's a command. Okay, so... Secondly, it's, there's no better example of Somebody who uh, submitted to authority than Jesus. And Peter's going to get to that. Cross. Yeah, that, that's a very high reason. If, if Christ would submit to someone like Pilate and the governing authorities, how, how could we say we don't have to submit to authority? So yeah, you have the example of Christ. You have right here, there's a command, submit yourself to every authority for the Lord's sake. So you got the command, you've got the example. Take a look at verses 13 to 15. What other reasons do we have? So we got God's command. We got Christ's example. <coughs> Good order. Okay. So it says here in verse 14, right? Who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. God gave authority for a purpose. You're submitting to authority not just because there's, you know, God put them in a position so they can have a better life. God gave you authority so he can keep peace and order in society. Uh, the Christian recognizes authority is God-given and, and given for that purpose. So it kind of gets to the, the political thing with libertarians. What, why does government exist? Scripture says government exists for the sake of order. You know, this is why I... <laughs> I refer to, the, I call these verses, this section here, the pandemic section. Oh. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, don't use your freedom to cover up evil. Well, I'm not going to wear a mask. I don't care if you get sick. You know, there's no love in that. Yeah. Both the, the American freedom confused with the Christian freedom. The Christian would say, be considerate to others. Submit to governing authorities as far as it's possible. And that's what we did when we had our parking lot services because they didn't want us so many people in the gathering at the beginning. Uh, you know, as a Christian assembly, we submitted to the government and their requests. Right. Which their requests were not contrary to God's word. On the other hand, you have to, kind of like the churches in California, recognize there comes a point where the Christian must say, okay, you're, you're allowing bars to be open, you're allowing grocery stores to be open, but you're not allowing people to come to worship for an extended period of time. Worship is, is singled out in many ways. So many Christian churches had to decide, where do we draw the line in that submission, right? Uh, is this now for the sake of order, or is it rather because we're being singled out as those who worship the Lord. So, But yeah, this is the pandemic section. If you look at this, uh, the humility it takes for a Christian to submit to every authority for the Lord's sake, even in times of strife and uncertainty. Okay, so we have several reasons now, right? We got for the Lord's sake, God commands it, God's example, government is given for the sake of order. And look at verse 15, there's another reason listed. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So if someone starts claiming Christians are rebellious and going against the government, should they ever be able to make such a foolish claim against us? Unfortunately, sometimes they can, and they do. But they should see our life is so exemplary that we submit to the authority in ways they never would even consider, that they see, oh, Christians are law-abiding citizens. Except for when it comes to their God and their, what their God says. They follow every law that they can under the governing authority without question, without mocking the authority, and submitting in just perfect obedience. A good example of that would be North Vietnam. Their sure. communist government recognized the goodness of, of or the, the benefit of Christian living that they want us to build a seminary. Right, so that, that really ties in with evangelism. That, yeah. That's a good example. In Vietnam, why do they want Christians to build a seminary and to teach the, the Word of God? Well, those Christians are pretty good at submitting to authority. We, we need more of that here. And, well, yeah, if you're going to have Christianity, if it's true Christianity, you're going to have obedient citizenship. Even though they're exiles, they recognize their, their citizenship is in heaven, but they're submitting right now while they sojourn to their governing authority. So what's another reason to submit? I guess Peter would summarize it. Silence the t ignorant talk of foolish people, or as Bill reframed it, evangelism. Show the world what it means to be a Christian by your submission to authority. So if we were to list all the reasons Peter gives for submitting for the Lord's sake, it's while well, he commands us, he gives the example, government is there for our good, and by submitting, you give a witness to this world and silence the, the world that would accuse you of wrong. Um, discuss the, the significance of what's meant by every human authority. So Peter says, submit to the Lord's sake to every human authority. What's the significance of that phrase? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That it would be uh, 
not have the same ideas as you or not same views as you or not? Yeah, my, my party didn't get elected, so I don't have to submit. Well, every authority includes whoever is in charge. We're going to storm the White House. Yeah. This stuff has happened in our history. So yeah, it doesn't matter if you agree with whoever is in charge and what their policies are. Uh, you know, if you don't like the road that they're building, doesn't mean you don't have to pay taxes for that road. You still do. Now, once again, where does a Christian draw the line, right? If that authority starts saying, I'm going to pay for abortions, the Christian out of conscience has to say, well, there I, I have to object, right? And as, as far as it's possible, through the correct channels, stand against what is evil. If we're seeing in the future this coming to head, if the government should tell our teachers or our pastors that they can't speak out against homosexuality, that that would be hate speech, um, then our, we're going to have to decide. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we, were, we were talking on Sunday about Jesus said, you know, now is the time where it's day. Your work was day. Night is coming when no one can work. That night might be coming here where we can no longer speak openly God's word. And the freedom, so to speak, that we enjoy of proclaiming the truth of God's word might disappear overnight. And that, that day may come sooner rather than later. Yep. So, but until they go against God's word, you have to submit to every authority and every aspect. How about, um, how about this? What's the significance of the words sent by him? The governors, the, the supreme authority, the emperor, who are sent by him. What's the significance of that? Well, I look at that as it's not just the, the king or the governors, but it, the people that are under them are sent to do the government's work, like your public health director, the, okay, the head so of the Department of Public Safety, whatever. Every governing, of, uh, every proper authority, it may not have, the, the king doesn't have to come to my, or I should say the governor of Arizona doesn't have to come to my house to tell me to quit speeding. He sure. Has, he has the police forces and, and those in charge there. So every authority includes not just the head, top heads, it includes all the sub-authorities down to uh, the local law enforcement or Perhaps you could even say someone that's in a, My wife. a school, the school superintendent that's been appointed. All, all those authorities, yeah. Okay, so every authority includes all that. And then sent by him includes those lower authorities too. That God has established every authority. As, as Paul says in Romans 13, 13 every, there is no authority except that which God has established. All those authorities who exist have been established by God. So Romans 13, Paul says the same thing. Peter says, authorities are sent by God. And that's hard to reconcile with the fact that they will occasionally do things contrary to God's will. They're responsible for that, but God still put them in charge. It's, they're liable and they're accountable for their failures. Sometimes people can get, and maybe I'll just speak, but people get confused by God sending an individual rather than the idea of authority. Does that make sense? So like, oh, God sent us this person so that you know, he can take away all this bad stuff. And then, but he also sends the other people as well. They don't want to talk about sure. It's, it's really the person filling the office. They, they focus so much on the person himself. 
And then when someone else fills that office, suddenly they don't respect the office or position. Uh, yeah, you can't focus on the person is the supreme authority. It's that the authority is the authority. Whoever happens to be holding that position. Good point. So I remember in grade school, we were studying this, and our teacher asked us, if we had lived in the time of the Revolutionary War, would we have been patriots or Tories? <laughs> <laughs> and I was a kid, so I was like shocked that, oh, of course we'd be patriots. <laughs> but reading the section and thinking about it, I... No, sure. I would they had a conflict because they had their they had their local authority, and their local authority was telling them to go against the higher authority. So, do you follow the the congressional offices and your your local governor that was rebelling against the king, or do you follow the king? Well, the local governors back then were under the king. Right. So they were rebelling. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so what, what would we have been as Christians? You probably have to argue in many respects. You would have been someone that would remain loyal to the, the distant, disconnected, heavy-handed king. If you were to follow what Peter says here. Because, yes, the, the local authorities were there, but who did, God, who did God put to send them? How about this? Uh, Christian freedom involves a paradox. So I'm looking at now verse 16. Analyze what is meant by live as free people, and then it concludes live as slaves. So what does Peter mean by live as free people, but live as God's slaves? Follow God's commands. The ultimate command. Okay. So how are you free if you're a slave to God's commands? Well, we're free to do Whatever we'd like, as long as it's in accordance with God's will, which includes brotherly love. Doing it out of love for others, but not thinking of just oneself all the time. Okay. So by live as free people, he doesn't mean the American version of freedom, right? Yeah, I mean, even scripturally, we're free to indulge in a little wine now and then, but you wouldn't want to go take a six-pack of beer to an AA meeting. So yeah, Christian freedom encompasses so many aspects of our life that we can now enjoy, and as Paul says, receive everything with thanksgiving. We can do things that uh, people in ancient Israel couldn't do even. And we're free to you know, step outside the ceremonial laws. And the, we mentioned the third commandment. We're not bound to the Sabbath anymore. Paul makes that clear. Uh, Jesus made that clear. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now... How do you use your freedom? Live as God's slaves. Uh, Paul speaks very, very similarly about free and slaveship. If you look at on the left-hand column there, way at the bottom I put free but not free. How are we free in Christ? Uh, Galatians 5.1. And how are we slaves in Christ? Romans 6, the whole chapter, kind of breaks that down, that we are now slaves to righteousness. Uh, we've been freed and that we're no longer bound to the, the rules of keeping the law to be saved, but we're, we're rescued from sin. But now that you've been freed from sin, you're slaves to Christ, and that means a slave to righteousness. So if you want to expound on that, we could look at that, but today we're going to try to finish this next page here. Um, can you describe for me how Jesus perfectly kept 1 Peter 1.17? So that's, that reads, Show proper respect to everyone. 
love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. How did Jesus, as he took our place and took on human flesh, how did he perfectly live that out? He went even to the point of the cross. And think of the whole way to the cross, right? Uh, Did he show respect to everyone? Certainly. Uh, He absolutely did. And you you see him at times decrying, you know, the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and and saying, woe to you. But at the same time, he is someone that never, you know, overlooked even the, the children that were despised by the disciples never overlooked someone like Zacchaeus, who was an outcast. Uh, He was showing proper respect to the governing authorities. Uh, Even as he stood on trial, he did not, you know, speak out or or mock or speak against them. Yeah. He paid his taxes. Yeah, he paid his taxes. Even though many Jews considered Rome to be an illegitimate government. He said, give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? So for all the times that we griped about, you know, oh, I've got to pay this for a tax, or the gasoline tax went up, you know, he paid his tax. Although one time he just had to go fishing for it, right? I was just thinking about that. He miraculously found the coin in the fish's mouth. (laughs) However, he could have kept that coin for himself, (laughs) but he paid his tax. Um, His first miracle was a good example where his mother asked him to do something at a request of the wedding at the wedding in Canaan. Yeah. And he said, My time is not yet. But he honored his mother and did it anyway. Yeah, when it when it came to the unbelieving world, as far as it was possible, he showed respect. But when it came to the family of believers, he went above and beyond when they would request something of him uh, to show love to them. And in the case of his first miracles, okay mom, if if this is what you're asking, here you go. Or if a believer wanted something from him and he was tired and he would carry it out until he was exhausted and he fell asleep in the boat afterwards, showing compassion, teaching, preaching, healing, uh, always responding. And then fear God. He turned to the Father. Even as he's about to suffer and die, he respected and loved the Father more than the road and the fears that lay ahead. Honor the emperor. Uh, We spoke about that, how Jesus honored the governing authorities in our place for all the times we failed. This is important for us to keep in mind because our salvation isn't dependent on on us honoring the king or the president and fearing God and loving the family believers. We have to recognize our failures. But seeing Christ and what he has done, we see our, our perfect substitute and we're free. We're free from having to keep it ourselves as we have his righteousness. Let's uh, turn to page 10 here. We're called to endure harsh treatment. So what we see here in this section, reading uh, verse 18 and following, is this was God's plan for us. So you can see the sidebar for an overview of slavery in ancient Rome. Uh, I just want to quickly kind of go through that to give us some context here. Um, Lots of ancient civilizations, in fact, most ancient civilizations had some form of slavery, right? I mean, who's not familiar with the slavery that was in Egypt with the people of Israel, right? How they were slave labor force. Uh, But you also had other nations, uh, Syria, the the Greeks, you know, before the Romans took over, the Greeks had slaves, uh, quite common. 
Greeks in Athens apparently even had up to four slaves per household in those, those wealthy households. Uh, but unlike slavery in colonial America, it wasn't based on ethnicity. Uh, the Roman slaves were quite often actually war uh, booty. They would be those who were conquered nations that refused to submit to Rome. Uh, and it's kind of interesting when you read about it, they would have slave traders following the Roman army so that when the Roman army conquered a people, the slave traders would take possession of those people and barter them in the marketplaces. And there were slave markets found throughout the Roman Empire. So that was the majority of the slaves. They were actually people that were, that were conquered by the Romans who had resisted the Romans. You'd also find uh, slaves were um, sold for debt. So that was, that was a thing that took place too. Jesus' parables even point to that, that if someone couldn't pay off a debt, uh, a father would even sell off their children to pay off his own debt, uh, something, a thing that would happen in that society. Uh, they didn't have the, the same legal protections and practices we do. Also, there were pirates. Just as today you have people, human trafficking, that was apparently a, a problem in the Roman Empire that they struggled against for the first several hundred years. And then the emperors slowly clamped down on slavery and the, the pirates. What was it like for a slave? Well, Roman citizens that were enslaved were exempt from corporal punishment. They had certain rights. But generally, slaves in the Roman Empire regarded as possession. Uh, so if you had a debt or if you were bought by your owner, you were considered part of their property, even though <clears throat> you couldn't just kill a slave. Uh, you, you basically had possession of them. Except slaves had the ability to buy property. They had ability to build up their own account of money so a slave could actually buy their own freedom. So in other words, what we're, what we're seeing in the Roman Empire was more of a, a money-based system of slavery, not ethnicity-based, but more of a transactional slavery. So a slave basically was considered under a certain weight of, of money. And if they could get past that weight of money, they could buy their freedom or buy the freedom of their family, which is different from the colonial America, you're never going to be freed slavery that we had. Uh, slaves that were runaways, however, were very harshly treated. Uh, because you were considered property until you paid your debt, you could be beaten cruelly or you could be even crucified uh, for being a fugitive slave who was caught running away. We have a lot of evidence of things like that happening, how cruel slaves were treated. So would you say it's more similar to being an, an indentured servant? Uh, not quite as light as that, but it, it had that sort of undertone quite often. Uh, but there were different classes of slaves. You know, if you were a war criminal slave versus a, a Roman citizen sold into debt slave, you'd be under different rights and different tiers. Uh, some slaves were branded, and some had to wear metal collars. Uh, and so if you were a slave that was in a life-bound debt, you were basically treated like cattle. So, and you would have been treated cruelly. Uh, the, the emperors, including, I found this surprising, Nero, gave rights to the slaves. And gradually, as the empire progressed, more slaves were freed. And I think part of that, historians say, is because they were afraid of slaves uprising. Because, you know, if slaves don't have certain protections and rights, uh, they're eventually going to rebel. And history shows that. Okay, so that's just a background on that. Uh, now that we've had a quick overview of ancient Rome and slavery... Discuss how verse 18 to 21 was misused by Christians in colonial times in, in 19th century America. <clears throat> so in verse 18, Peter says, Slaves. And that, as we discussed, it really does mean slaves. Some people try to whitewash that. Like, well, they weren't really slaves. They were more servants. Some of them were very badly treated slaves. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, 
Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. So how are those verses, how have they been misused by colonial 19th century Americans? Yeah. Well, just um, saying, oh, the Bible says that we can treat our slaves harshly. <laughs> right. So they use, as an excuse to yeah. break, break the, you know, the sixth mm-hmm. commandment, the fifth commandment, to, to murder, to, to rape, to right. treat them inhumanely and... That be, that'd be the same as a governing authority saying, oh, Christians have to submit me so I can be as hard on all, all Christians as I want. Uh, colonial Central Americans, who were not kind often to their slaves, treated them harshly, said, see, it says in the Bible, you have to submit to me no matter what I do. That's obviously an abuse. Well, first of all, they committed kidnaps. They went over to Africa and stole them. Right. They took them from their homeland. So, I mean, that was the first crime, really, kidnapping, and then they did it for greed. Which were, were sold by their fellow tribesmen quite often, too. Oh, okay, well, that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But still. Either way, even if they were sold by fellow tribesmen, it's still kidnapping. Right. It's against their will. Sure, yeah. So, how would you respond to this? It doesn't matter how high a position or how much control you have over someone else or they have over you. Attitude matters. So it doesn't matter whether you're a slave or the president of the United States. It doesn't matter whether you are the CEO of a company or you're the lowest employee. That doesn't matter. What matters is your attitude. Well, we're all sinners. Yeah. You would agree? Right. Nowhere, nowhere does God say slavery is a good thing, but as, as it's practiced among human societies, whether it's because of debt or because of some other cause or reason, God later on, he'll, he'll call on slave uh, masters to be kind and considerate, all Christians, and for those who are under their master to be considerate and obedient. And really, put it in today's modern context, if you owe a huge debt and you're paying off a mortgage, Maybe they can't treat you harshly, but they certainly have you under a huge weight of debt, and they basically own you. And sure, you can declare bankruptcy, and then your life is terrible. But it doesn't matter where your position is. What matters is your attitude as you live out your Christian life. Or if you're the CEO of a company, how are you going to treat your employees? Or if you're the lowliest employee just mopping the floors, what's your attitude towards the employer as you carry out your work? So don't look at your position. Look at how do you live, because your position, ultimately, everybody's position is under God. What's your attitude as you carry out your Christian life? Um, The next paragraph there. Although there is no legal form of slavery in our nation, thank God, we do have legal debts and obligations to authorities, 
such as our employers. Can you brainstorm? Come up with some possible ways a Christian might suffer for doing good in the workplace due to a harsh employer. And how do you apply Peter's instruction to that? Right. So if you have a harsh boss who just, you just can't seem to get on their good side, does that mean you just stick it to them and wherever you can find a way to make the company suffer, you, you just do it, right? Or I don't have to work hard because my boss doesn't respect me? Or they put such demands on you for, to work such, so many days or, or, or certain days and certain hours and stuff that it, it hinders your time to go to church, attend Bible studies, or do something. Um, that can happen. Right. So you, you have to... And they know that it's going to do that, but they do it anyway, knowing you. Yeah, you have to, as a Christian, continue to endure it, hold up, but don't let it take you from your God. Yeah. So, good thing, even though Ryan's got a huge schedule, he's here for Bible study, right? <laughs> His employer made sure he had time for that. <laughs> He has his first appointment in seven minutes. Peter says, To this you were called, namely to endure suffering while doing good. Can you think of an example of a, a slave in Bible history who suffered for doing good? Joseph. Sir, Joseph certainly comes to mind. He was a slave. He, he only did good. In fact, he's one of the few nearly blameless characters in, in the Bible. And what does he get for it? He gets thrown in prison. He gets slandered. He gets left there to rot. And how did knowing God called him, someone like Joseph, how did that help Joseph in the pits of despair? Peter says, to this you were called, to endure hardship even as you serve. Well, God gave him the ability to interpret, which even though it took a long time for somebody to remember it, they well, they came around to where he benefited the Pharaoh. And so the end story certainly came out that God lifted him up. Peter will talk about that, you know, endure under God's mighty hand and he'll lift you up in time. But here, if, if God has called us to endure harsh treatment, does he also have the ability to bring that call to that, that glorification in the end, right? To follow Christ into glory. And knowing that God called him, didn't that help Joseph? He said at the end, you know, you intended to harm me, but God intended for good. So picture Joseph sitting in prison, maybe wondering about that. God, what good? Clearly, God, you have a plan for me. I trust you. But what good will this accomplish? I know you have a plan. How that would have sustained him in the pits of despair. And doesn't that sustain us uh, when we're suffering under the pain of doing good and, and serving our God to know he's called us to do that? And that in the end, he'll accomplish his good purpose. So how does the fact that God has called us, and as we saw in chapter 1, has foreknowledge of the road we walk, isn't that a great comfort when we are good but still treated harshly? Right? So we could discuss that, but I just want to bring that point out, that Peter's trying to, to let you know when he says, this, to this you were called. That, that should build you up to endure that hardship, to know even as you face those, those difficult times and harsh treatment, 
God, why'd you call me to this? He, he's done it before. He did it with Joseph. He did it with Christ. He'll do it with you. He called you to a good purpose. And he never forsakes us. He's always, he hangs in with us no matter what. Yeah. He's always there. So continue to live in, in that faith, hope, and love. Our God didn't purchase us for slavery. He purchased us back from slavery to be his own. He purchased us to, as Peter says, live as free people. Can you list three ways that all Christians are now freed? Because we, we looked at the redemption, and that, that's kind of interesting that Peter's talking to slaves because he just said to all Christians, you were redeemed, and you're free. Free from sin. We're free from sin. Sin's guilt. Sin's condemnation. We're, we're free from that. You've been bought, he says, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, blemish or defect. You've been redeemed, bought back from slavery to sin. What else? How, how else are we freed? To love. Okay, we're freed so, to now live in love. He says, you know, live in brotherly love. What about uh, the devil? <laughs> Later on, he's going to say, resist the devil. You know, you, the devil's going to flee. You have, the devil has no power over us. We're freed from the control and mastery of the devil. And ultimately, as Peter's been saying all along, we have an inheritance in heaven. Aren't we free from death and the curse of the grave and from hell? Just good things to, to keep in mind. We are free, no matter what your status is, and God has called you. All right, finally today, I think we have enough time to finish this page. I'd, I'd like to, in the last four minutes here. Called to walk in the footsteps of Christ. That's what I'm going to title this last section, verse 21 to 25. He says, To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. It's quoting from Isaiah 53 there. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he's quoted several times from the, the Passion Prophecy of Isaiah 53 there. So let's quickly review the plan of salvation. What are some ways Christ lived as the example of an obedient servant who suffered for doing good? Did he suffer in his temptation in the wilderness? And he was fully human, so he had to. Yeah, he, he was hungry, it says. But he lived. And he endured that, that suffering of hunger and tire <coughs> all for us. And all the temptation was presented. He was tempted to just take the easy road many times, not just by the devil directly in the wilderness, but through Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. As Peter said, no, don't go to the cross. 
So he was tempted to, instead of serve the Lord, uh, to take the easy road. He lived as the obedient servant as he's face down in the garden. Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken away, but your will be done, not mine. The obedient servant as he remained on the cross, as Paul says, obedient even to death on the cross. He suffered for do, all this for doing good. And Peter says, that's an example for, for us to follow. Yes, it's our salvation, but shouldn't we also learn from that and follow that? Peter says, see those footsteps leading to the cross? Follow in those steps. Can you find three reasons Peter gives for why Christ suffered in this section? So just look at verse 21 to 25. What are three reasons why Christ suffered? Okay, so we have by his wounds you have been healed, or he bore our sins. So Christ suffered to take our sins away. We see that is very, Peter doesn't skirt around that. Just, just because Jesus is an example, he doesn't miss the main thing. He died to bear our sins and to heal us from our, our sins. So that's one reason. What's another reason Peter gives here? So he does an example. So he not only bore our sins, he suffered for you, leaving you an example. Yeah. And can you find the third reason? We return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls to live. Sure, it's found in godly lives now. It's found in the second half of verse twenty-four and twenty-five. Uh, to re that we return to our shepherd, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. So yeah, he died to take our sins away and to be an example so we could live in righteousness now. Good. Uh, Peter had mentioned the blood of Christ shed to redeem sinners. So remember that way at verse, I think it was even verse one or two, right? Peter mentioned later on how he was the precious blood in redemption, the blood that was sprinkled. Now Peter mentions the redemption price included insults, wounds, and hanging on the cross. So he's getting the picture, right? First it was sprinkled blood, then it was redeeming blood that was innocent blood, and now it's blood that was shed on a cross after he had been wounded and insulted. See how he's gradually expounding on the picture of Christ crucified for us? Explain how the biblical picture of redemption ties in with the topic of slavery. So how does redemption connect to that slaves to sin? But we turn to the Lord and ask forgiveness, which is our saving grace. How did we get that saving grace? Through Jesus Christ. Yeah, through his death, through his redemption. So uh, uh, basically, to, to be made free, a price had to be paid, right? And look at the price that, that Peter is expounding on, an innocent one, the holy, precious blood of Christ, the wounds, the insults, the hanging on the cross. If, if you're concerned about slavery and, and that God tolerates and tells slaves to be obedient, look what his son did. His son became the slave of all and endured the worst for us all. 
because all of us were slaves to something far worse than any human master. We were slaves to our own sin, the death, and the devil. Uh, but Christ paid the price. Uh, we've, been, we've been purchased. Uh, in ancient Rome, a fugitive slave, as I mentioned, could be whipped or crucified as punishment. Can you describe how mankind ran from the Lord and went astray? Peter says here in this section, you were like sheep going astray. Weren't really like runaway fugitives trying to escape from where we belonged. We have returned not to a harsh slave driver or a cruel shepherd. We have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Can you list some things which make our return to the Lord different from a return to our former state of slavery? So you've, you've not returned to what you used to be, your empty way of life, as he called it earlier. You've returned to your shepherd, to the overseer of your souls. Yeah. So he, he is now not saying, okay, now that I got you back, you're going to have it so hard. He's saying, put the ring on his finger. Make him feel anointed. Let him know he has an inheritance. He's 100% welcome back, doesn't have to earn his way. Uh, so our shepherd feeds us. Our shepherd loves us, longs for us to be under his care. Uh, it's far different from what we used to have in the slavery to sin, the empty way of life, uh, which was just like that prodigal son, wasn't it? Uh, where there was no care or love for us. So that's important for us to, to see and to hold on to. Peter's led us to see another reason to walk in the footsteps of Christ. As we walk in his footsteps, he's leading us uh, to not just follow his example, but because he's paid for everything, and we're following a good shepherd, uh, one who cares for our souls. Any questions, comments on this section? I know I took you five minutes over, but I wanted to keep pace since we're going through this topic eventually together as a Sunday series. Sure, yeah. It came on I'm from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right. Well, in leave <laughs> it up to me, but first peak in this is from uh, uh, King James Version. As uh, Does it use the word liberty there? They they do. Okay. Got to find it, and lose it. Get, yes. get the Bible to wake up. Okay. Uh, and this uh, going to be two verses, but it's uh, uh, one sentence. For so is the will of God that all that with well doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolishness of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of the God. Quite the language there, yeah. <laughs> a cloak of what? A, a cloak of maliciousness. A cloak of maliciousness, wow. 
I have to look at the Greek, see where they pulled that from. That's that's poetic. A cover-up for evil. Definitely a good picture there. You know, one, one thought that we can maybe close with is uh, kind of in connection with that is the, the liberty that's described for us as Americans, our freedom, as it's often is, you know, the... We're endowed with our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. The Bible doesn't say that. It says we've been gifted. Uh, we're not, we don't have that as a right, liberty, our freedom, and happiness in life. It's actually a gift, and it was bought, paid for by the blood of Christ. So that's a very different picture, isn't it, in the Bible, that it's not an unalienable right, it's a gift but from the precious blood of Christ. Uh, so that totally changes your mindset that I deserve this, like American freedom, to this was won for me. Uh, not just by countless soldiers who won a battle so I have a right and protect that right, but a right that I never should have had. And it was paid for by God's Son. So definitely a different mindset there. Not that I don't appreciate as what we celebrate on Memorial Day, but far greater uh, what we celebrate in memory of Christ as we receive his body and blood, the, the blood shed for us of the Son of God. Why don't we close uh, with uh, a prayer about what we looked at today. Lord God, we see from Peter that he reminds us as sojourners and strangers uh, to abstain from sinful desires. Forgive us for the times where we did not live as exiles or foreigners, but lived as if we belonged in this world. And use us to follow in the example of Christ that this world may see our good deeds and glorify your name when you return. As we follow in Christ's example, help us to submit to every authority as sent by you, uh, to the highest and lowest authority, whatever position we hold in this life. Let our attitude be the same as Christ, because you've called us to this. And as we walk in his example, we rejoice in his redemption. Thank you for bringing us back to our overseer and the shepherd of our souls. Amen.